Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to the Politico Nerdcast, where we bring you inside the stories of the White House and geek out on the amazing circus of American politics. Hi, this is senior politics editor Charlie Matessian sitting in for Kristen Roberts, who is taking a much-deserved breather, I think, in, in Las Vegas. I'm here today with Scott Bland. Hello. And Katie Glick. Hi. And what we're going to do this episode is a little bit different. We're not going to talk data points. We are going to take questions from our listeners. So we're going to hear from a couple of our listeners, and we're going to read their questions on the air and try to answer them as best we can. And uh, just to pop in with an answer to a question that we've been getting a lot, uh, the Nerdcast continues. The election is over, but the Nerdcast uh, soldiers on, and we love producing this podcast. We love hearing from all of our listeners about it, and uh, there's going to be plenty of politics to talk about uh, in perpetuity, it looks like. Then let's get right to it. We have Sam on the line who's going to ask a question about Iowa. Uh, hey, um, as an Iowa native and one who proudly cast his first ever vote for Obama during the caucuses in 2008, uh, I'm wondering how the nomination process may change in 2020. You know, we hear every cycle, we hear calls for the process to be shaken up, that Iowa and New Hampshire have too much clout and they aren't representative of the country as a whole. But at least on the Democratic side, the populist wave reared its head early and didn't debate in the upper middle in Midwest. Bernie barely lost Iowa and won handily in Wisconsin and Minnesota and Michigan. And the writing was on the walls during the nomination process that white working class people were dissatisfied. And it seems that if the Clinton campaign had been tuned into that, the election may have turned out differently. So do you guys see Iowa losing its place as the first in the nation caucus or do party leaders just listen more closely next time. Thanks for your question, Sam. Uh, I'm going to throw this to Katie, who spent a ton of time in Iowa and also uh, spent a lot of money pumping money into the Iowa economy during the uh, primary season. So, Katie, what do you make of this? Uh, well, hey, Sam, thanks so much for your question. So, you know, there is a lot of speculation about what happens to Iowa every cycle. Um, you know, the Democrats have a little bit of a better track record of, uh, you know, having the winner of the Iowa caucuses go on to to become the nominee than Republicans do. Because, you know, you look at the last couple cycles and, you know, there was Mike Huckabee, there was Rick Santorum, there was Ted Cruz, were all successful in the Iowa caucuses. None of them went on to become the nominee. So, you know, certainly always a lot of, of speculation about that. Um, you know, I can tell you that officials in Iowa certainly uh, take very seriously, you know, their uh, responsibility, as, as I'm sure you know, as, you know, the first in the nation uh, caucus state. And so, you know, certainly uh, there would be a whole lot of pushback, as I'm sure you can imagine, uh, on the ground if, if there were any efforts to happen. But, but you know, it, it is something that, that does come up uh, at every turn. Um, I can tell you on the, the Republican side, you know, this time around, you know, we did see the whole state leadership come out uh, and try and support Donald Trump, despite not winning the caucuses. Um, and then he did, of course, end up winning 
representing uh, the state. So certainly uh, people fired up there and I think would uh, have quite a lot to say if there were efforts to take it away. Yeah, Sam, I think uh, to that point, I think in, in addition to the many obstacles that stand in the way of changing any of these orders, I think, you know, what you hinted at in your question is, pr- is probably right, that the, the election results were kind of a big red, like blaring war- warning siren to Democrats that maybe it wouldn't be such a good idea to, uh, you know, to abandon the the kind of traditional order that that maybe did serve as an early warning system for for some of the issues that that we've now ended up talking about for the the week plus since the election. Uh, you know, it, I mean, it is interesting to note, like, uh, Nevada has moved up in the order because Democrats have made the argument, you know, it's it's a little more kind of represent, you know, it, it represents some of their coalition a little bit more. And and that caucus actually had a very similar result to Iowa. You know, it was a very close Clinton win. Uh, but but I think, you know, if, if anything, the, the talk out of Democrats over the last week about maybe trying to remember some of their, you know, their their party's roots in the Midwest and and pay a little more heed to what's going on there over the next four years would suggest to me that they may not be so eager to to pull the plug on Iowa as the first. My bet would be Nevada of all the early states that that have to be a little bit nervous or biting their nails about losing their early state status. I mean, that's a state that we've seen just debacle after debacle on both sides since it became became a hallowed early state. And without uh, Harry Reid, around protecting Nevada's interests. Who knows what will happen? Uh, well, thank you so much for calling, Sam. Thank you, guys. Our next question is uh, Amy from Long Island. Yeah, um, I was curious, can people sue the president? And what about the cases that already exist, whether they're civil or in criminal court? Thanks so much for the call, uh, Amy. Um, I think as the uh, the sitting lawyer on the panel, this one will fall into my lap. Uh I would say, broadly speaking, uh, what we learned from a case known as uh, Clinton versus Jones is that a uh, sitting president does not have presidential uh, immunity from a suit that's over conduct unrelated to his un- his official duties. So in other words, uh, if it happened before he was president and it isn't related to his official duties as president, uh, sure, uh, he can be sued. And I think that's something we learned from the, uh, the Bill Clinton versus Paula Jones case. And I think that's something that we're going to see during the, the Trump administration. He's going to be confronted uh, with this. Um, and he is going to have to decide whether he's going to have to settle all of these suits or it's going to be uh, a little bit tricky for him. But there is a case out there that, that lays out pretty explicitly uh, what the uh, path is here. And uh, Amy, you know, I, I think your question kind of gets at uh, a, f- a few other questions that we've received about pe- people, you know, are kind of really like dealing with, you know, a lot, a lot of emotions about the, uh, you know, obviously, especially uh, Clinton supporters who who were expecting her to win and then watched, you know, Trump emerge victorious on Wednesday morning last week. And there's a lot of, you know, kind of confused and confusion and and uh, uh, fright uh, and and you know a lot a lot of the, those kind of emotions kind of running through some of the questions we've gotten charlie do you want to read off a couple of the other ones that we that, that we've received just you know along the along those lines so uh theo has written has trump's election normalized racism and just to paraphrase what he wrote he he has a line here and he says gone are the institutional admonitions against racism and the insistence that minority experiences are valid and co-equal uh, and so I think he's a little frustrated by the institutional calls for civility during the, the transition. Then we have uh, another question from uh, Christian, who writes that he is a non-citizen uh, legal alien. Uh, he's 26, male, gay, and married. 
And uh, he says last week's events have left him in shock and disbelief. Uh, and he's got an endless, endless whirlwind of questions that are circulating in his head. And I think his question is, um, what are the ideas that are likely to be the focus of the new administrations? Uh, and wh- which ones won't have the support of the House and Senate and which ones uh, are a shoe in And I, th- I think this is probably a good time, Katie, for, for us to talk a little bit about uh, this idea that people are scared and what is the Trump agenda and how fearful do people need to be, the people that are you know despondent over the results here? So no doubt this is a period of a lot of uncertainty for a lot of people. Um, you know, as, we, as we've discussed and as, as I think the, the, these questions demonstrate, um, you know, it's a period of a lot of fear for, for a lot of people who aren't quite sure what to expect from a Trump administration, but are certainly bothered by, you know, the rhetoric that, that we saw, you know, from uh, many of his uh, supporters and, and at times from the campaign uh, itself uh, over the course of the election. Um, you know, it, it, at some level, we are kind of in a wait and see mode, right? We've got to see who he appoints. Uh, to to a number of of top cabinet positions that may uh, play and, and in fact, probably will play a key role in in shaping um, his approach to everything from from foreign policy to, uh, in many ways, immigration. But, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that some of the really big things people are are worried about um, would actually be very complicated to to achieve. So, for example, um, something that has, you know, worried a lot of people is is the fact that Trump, um, at at times during the campaign, expressed support for a deep Deportation force for you know a lot of folks who, uh, who, who are undocumented living here. Um, you know that is a really big undertaking, and that is something that Paul Ryan has said is not a priority, is not something uh, that Congress is looking at, at, at to happen. So. You know, I, I think that, that that is not something that, that needs to maybe be uh, as much of an immediate uh, fear, um, that, that something like, like that is imminent. Um, and, and then, you know, that we, we've heard also a lot about uh, the question of gay rights and sort of where the administration or uh, incoming administration is on that. Um, you know, as much as, you know, certainly we've heard a lot of divisive rhetoric throughout the course of the campaign, you know, actually on, on gay rights, um, you know, we've actually seen Trump and, and people around him take a little bit of a more moderate, more conciliatory approach. I mean, during the Republican National Convention, you know, Peter Thiel, uh, of course, a co-founder of PayPal, actually got up there, gave a speech. He said, I'm proud to be gay at the RNC, uh, which was a you know, really uh, unusual moment. Watershed but, but, moment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so so I, I actually think folks who are really worried about what happens to gay rights can, can maybe, you know, breathe a little bit easier because this uh, administration actually looks like it may take a more moderate, more conciliatory approach on, on that, that than other Republicans. Yeah, I think I think the real answer to that question is, is like Katie said, it's going to take some time to wait and see. And a lot of it depends on, you know, we haven't had much light shed during the the transition so far. Uh, but there are going to you know, there are going to be a lot of people taking over a lot of different departments. There's going to be a new attorney general who's going to, you know, and, and their department is potentially going to pursue a, a, a different um, you know, different cases, especially I think the the one to really keep an eye on. There's going to be a new Supreme Court justice, uh, and and who that person is and how they vote on on issues ranging from gay marriage to abortion to you know a host of other things is really going to have a big effect. And so I, you know, and uh, honestly, it it's not very satisfying right now. But I'm not sure that we have the answers at the moment. And I think it's important to keep in mind that what Trump talked about on the campaign trail tended to 
not be in the area of the culture wars. I mean, there was a culture war overlay to this entire campaign, but it wasn't the 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 main issues that used to serve as the different theaters in, in our culture wars, whether it was gay rights or guns or God, uh, you know, the big three G's of, of a decade or two decades ago, you know, and, and I think what he's concentrated on and seems to be talking a lot more about now is infrastructure, uh, trade, tax reform, and I think it's probably uh, maybe higher on his mind. The one thing that I, I worry about is I feel like uh, I've had this personally searing experience from the election results because of my daughter who's who's 10 years old and she goes to this uh, pretty diverse public school and, and she came home and she was really upset the next day and uh, we were talking a little bit about the election and you know she was I guess, you know, all the kids in, in her grade were talking about it and she was really worried about what would happen to some of her friends. And it was really hard as a parent explaining uh, what is going to happen, what's not going to happen. And also, this, this is the first time I've ever had to do this uh, w- with my kids is sort of explain American values and, and uh, you know, explain that uh, the broader framework of, of what this country is is not under threat, at least not right now, and that, you know, to take a deep breath and let's see how things go right now. What we're seeing is some of, I think, the the, the better angels of the American nature, and maybe this sounds a little bit Pollyannish, but when you take a look at President Obama and, and Vice President Biden and their approach, I mean, let's face it, those guys hate Trump. They trashed him on the trail, and now they're very conciliatory, very respectful, and I think finally for the first time what we're seeing out of President-elect Trump is some respect for the institution and for some of the players, whether it's Hillary Clinton or President Obama. He seems to recognize the gravity of the situation. And so what I've tried to do with my daughter, at least, was explain to her uh, how, how these values have been able to flow across time for decades and centuries and uh, explain sort of that there have always been really contentious debates over immigration in this country, always. You know, I grew up, you know, my grandfather was an immigrant to this country and, you know, back then, and I grew up in a place, an immigrant family that just bled this stuff, loved this country like nothing else, sent two kids to war, you know, one generation after uh, he came here, thought America was the greatest place in the world, Uh, you know, had the flags flying all the time. And so I've just been trying to explain to my own daughter this idea that uh, not to get trapped in the moment and to think about the historical span. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Our next question comes from Gwen in Alexandria. Hey, I'm wondering, is it possible over the next three years to build a census third party? Because if, if in response to everything that's happened, if the Democrats turn hard left, they're going to alienate the same blue-collar white guys who didn't vote for Hillary, and probably they'll alienate more people like me. And then on the other, on the other side, you have the Republicans, who I think will probably get pretty bloody too. We have, right, there are already the Republican leaders criticizing Trump's transition, and then you have voters who aren't Tea Party people or populists or alt-right, and they don't really have a place either. So knowing that there's a desire for a better choice, is it possible for a third party to sprout up and take root? 
Yeah, thanks for your question, Gwen. Um, you know, to to be honest, I'm not sure that there is, um, and and I say that with with the full uh, humility of you know someone who like like many in the media was, was has been given a, a hefty dose of surprise in the last week, um, but. You know, typically, I think what we see happen with with presidents, and we're already seeing it happen, you know, within the congressional Republican Party, uh, is that you know the the party kind of coalesces around its president when when it holds the White House, and and then the other party kind of organizes in opposition to that, and kind of you know there's this back and forth. And I think you know Democrats just got a big surprise. I think they thought that party coalitions were a little more stable than than they were and it turns out it turns out the those coalitions weren't stable and a lot of people kind of who had voted for Obama in 2008 and 2012 ended up voting for Trump and so you know the question is there's really no organizing force in in between those parties for people to to grab onto now now the question is could there be you know hypothetically someone could could try and set something like that up, right? But it's just, you know, there's, it's, it's a very expensive undertaking. It's a very time consuming undertaking. And, and there aren't really any institutions that already exist to do it around. Whereas the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, you know, are already kind of set up for people to gravitate toward uh, in, in opposition or in support of, of the new administration. I think it's a great question because it's kind of mind boggling uh, that in a country like ours, as big and diverse as ours, we are still stuck with the same uh, two major parties that we've lived with for over a century. It's it's just amazing. Uh, and I think the pressures on each party are growing and growing and you keep th- or at least I keep thinking they're going to explode and force the creation of a third party and it never really happened. So I'm sort of from this, I guess, the Scott Bland school, which is I'm not very bullish about the prospects of a centrist third party. Uh, emerging or any sort of uh, viable third party that can compete uh, seriously with with the Democratic and Republican parties, I think it's more of a generational endeavor, meaning it, it might happen, but it's going to take time. It will be over many, many cycles, uh, not just it's not going to happen because of the frustration over this election. And I think the perfect example of that is, I mean, think about how frustrated people were with the two choices they had and how uh, unpopular both major party nominees ended up being. And still, at the end of the day, when you look at the results, uh, only about 6% of the vote went to third parties. As frustrated as everybody wa- were, we got six, po- uh, six points. That's it. And so I think it goes to show you the, the scope of, of what needs to be undertaken to create a viable third party. And also keep in mind, the reason I think it's, it's a generational change is because all the rules have to be changed too. All these, all these major states have designed systems uh, to keep out third parties, to keep out competition. That's why some states have uh, rules that are designed to limit absentee voting or early in-person voting. You know, some of the ones that have been around for decades and decades, they were all designed to keep the major parties in power. That's why it's that's why it was so hard for Evan McMullen to get any traction and why he was, wasn't able to get on all the ballots because the major parties make it make it difficult to do that. Thanks so much for the question, Gwen. Thank you guys very much. Now we'll move to a question from Jean-Luc. When people talk about the need for Democrats to seek out new young talent for the upcoming midterm elections in the 2020 presidential race, how exactly do Democratic leaders go about this process? Does the DNC keep an informal running list of people it considers up-and-comers? And if so, who do you think is on it? And if not, who amongst the Democrats is responsible for finding the next big stars of the party? What do you think, Katie? Well, 
big picture, I think that this has to be organic. You know, if there's anything Democrats don't want, it's another coronation. There was a sense among a lot of Democrats that uh, Hillary Clinton was so uh, preordained to be the nominee that, that perhaps there wasn't as much room for sort of grassroots energy, grassroots enthusiasm. And so I think next time around, it's going to be, you know, whoever it is that, that spends these next four years you know, really uh, energizing the base, being out there, speaking out, you know, maybe putting forth a different kind of policy vision. I, I mean, certainly there's a lot of divisions within the Democratic Party right now. It's very unclear, you know, which of the many prevailing views out there or which of the many views out there is going to ultimately prevail. But I think what you really want to be doing is watching those people who are putting themselves out there, um, you know, putting forth, you know, various agendas and, and really trying to, to organically stir up that, that kind of enthusiasm. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the one of the problems that parties have when they lose elections is that it turns out that a number of the people who could help them recover from such a loss also lose themselves. So I'm thinking in particular of uh, Missouri, where uh, Jason Kander, the Democratic nominee for Senate, was seen as a rising star in the party, uh, but, you know, couldn't couldn't run. He still ran 12 points ahead of Hillary Clinton there, but he still lost by a few. And so, you know, he's obviously not going to be in elected office. Same goes for the the governorship there. They had a, a Republican turned Democrat, Chris Coster, who was the state attorney general, who lost the the race for governor by five or six points. And, you know, again, he's he's someone who was looked on as potentially a rising star within the party who's not going to be around. Um, however, sticking with those governors, you know, I think where we're going to see the, the new stars, the new candidates uh, bubble up is going to be in these 2018 governor's races. There are going to be almost three dozen open Democratic primaries. Uh, around the country in states from, you know, the kind of diverse Sunbelt battlegrounds, you know, emerging places, Colorado, Nevada, Florida, Arizona, to, you know, the upper Midwest where there's been a lot of conversation about Democrats needing to to get some new blood, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin. So there are going to be a lot, a lot of opportunities in these governor's races for Democratic voters, not the party, not, you know, finance, you know, not the donors, whatever, for the voters to actually take a look at candidates and decide, hey, what do we want the party to look like? What do we want it to represent? And and I, you know, we're going to see this play out all over the country in the next couple of years. One thing, uh, one point that I would add to that is it's not so much uh, an institutional undertaking. It's not that the DNC promotes them themselves, or it's more of an organic uh, growth within the party and there's nothing you can do if you're an up-and-comer it's just sort of you're widely recognized i would say like most of the up-and-comers at the state level are, are already sort of whispered about in dc and i think uh the the up-and-comers tend to be an ambitious lot by nature uh they're well known in their states and they're always eager for national uh, attention and the national parties always have a vested interest in elevating them so i think you're going to see a lot more of that now uh, especially now that i think the democrats are beginning to recognize that you know the gerontocracy that runs that party uh, hasn't had a lot of success in in recent years. So let me move over to another question, sort of similar to this, which is about the the talent pool on the Democratic side. This one's from Tony, who uh, essentially wants to know who who's the talent that's going to throw their hat in the ring uh, for the Democratic nomination in 2020. How about some names, Scott? You want to uh, take a stab at this <laughs> about some folks who are in the hunt for 2020? Oh man. Um, well, uh, I, I think you know for starters. Uh, I think Bernie Sanders has said, you know, check back with me in 2019, so we can uh, we can we can leave that one on the table. Um, you know, there there are a host of new uh, uh, senators out there. Uh, Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire, who is also governor. I, you know, I'm, I'm sure 
people are going to be talking about Kamala Harris, mm-hmm. former state attorney general, now senator elect from California. Um, honestly, though, you know, it's 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 difficult to see. I think the the, the party is so shocked by uh, by Clinton's loss, not not just because. She lost, but because that you know the polls and everything else led them to expect that she was going to win. There, there, there was really not a lot of thought going into this, uh, going forward. And so I think it'll take some time to sort out. You know, I think there are going to be people watching to see what Tim Kaine does, and and you know how how and when does he reemerge into public life. Um, but it's I think it's going to take a little more time to sort out than maybe it did for Republicans after 2012. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the in the lead up to the election, I think a lot of Republicans were positioning themselves uh, to to emerge as you know the various uh, potential leaders of their party in the wake of what many expected was going to be a Donald Trump defeat. And instead, of course, uh, Republicans won up and down the ballot. And so uh, now the, the the focus has really shifted to the Democrats um, and, and sort of the question of you know what vision um, you know can can perhaps unite a, a party that actually does look quite fractured. Um, and uh, so you know. Uh, uh, again, uh, learned that, that it's pretty dangerous to, to make predictions in this kind of environment. But, you know, in terms of the people whose names you hear about, you know, you, you there are certainly um, some, some folks, I, I'd agree with Scott, um, you know, in, in the Senate in particular, you know, you hear some about Kirsten Gillibrand, Amy Klobuchar, um, you know, Cory Booker is is, is someone uh, with, with some national name ID um, and, and, you know, uh, agree on, uh, you, we got to watch Tim Kaine. Um, you know, I'm not saying that Elizabeth Warren is going to run for president, but, you know, obviously she's already uh, an influential voice within the party and and has, uh, even in the days since the election, been taking some steps to to further uh, solidify her her influence. I'll throw out a couple of other names, too, because I think you can't really do enough mentioning at this stage. I mean, people just want to hear (laughs) names. I think uh, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio is somebody who clearly uh, has the uh, appetite to run on a national stage, the, uh, the ego for it. Things may not be going uh, as well as maybe he liked in New York City, and maybe he's not as uh, well positioned as he was at one point. Uh, maybe might not even get reelected either way. But I think he's somebody to keep an eye on who's interested. Uh, Sherrod Brown is somebody who's going to probably uh, be in the hunt one way or another. Or if he wins in the re-election, yeah. Uh, Julian Castro. Uh, who else? Tulsi Gabbard. There's a long shot. I'm going to go out on a limb. Say her name. Uh, throw her name out there, the uh, Hawaii congresswoman and, and very prominent Bernie Sanders supporter. I think people will talk about her, maybe even Tom Perez, uh, whose star seems to be rising, although I have to say uh, his highest office, elected office is what, Montgomery County Council? So I really, as a Montgomery County resident, I have to question uh, <laughs> his electoral chops. Uh, then you, n- you never know. Uh, Bernie Sanders, I th- I would tend to think that Bernie doesn't do it. He's going to be around 80 years old, I think 79 on Election Day 2020. So I'm, I tend to think that he was sort of one and done, but you know, what do I know? Okay, let's let's move to the next one, uh, which is uh, a question about where does the Democratic Party go from here? And this was something that uh, Annie was asking us about. And uh, so instead of talking about like what names we're going to be hearing from, who is the up and coming talent? What do you do as a party after a loss like this? And and when I say a loss like this, it's not just the Trump defeat. I mean, that was stunning uh, and demoralizing to many Democrats. But this was not just at the presidential level. We're talking about at the Senate, uh, Democrats 
were certain they were going to win back the Senate. And in the House was, for many, for many Democrats, the most depressing of all. Everyone expected at least double-digit Democratic House gains. And in the end, Republic, Republicans, you know, they really escaped. It was a great escape act. They only lost six seats, which was, to me, in my mind, the equivalent of a victory for, for Republicans there. Then, when you drill down to the state level and state legislatures uh, and governorships, again, not a great year for Democrats. So, Scott, where, where does the Democratic Party go from here? Yeah, I think it's, it's like you said, it really has to start at the local level. I mean, you know, I think already you're hearing people talk about, oh man, like maybe there'll be a backlash midterm in 2018. But um, I think again, it's, you know, two years is a long time to hope to hope for something. Uh, and, uh, you know, politics certainly proved itself to be unpredictable enough in 2016 that maybe we, we, we probably shouldn't put too much stock in in predictions of what's going to be happening a couple of years down the line, but it really does have to start in 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 the states. Uh, these governors' races, state legislatures. You know, there's going to be a lot of and and also the, those races are going to play on uh, another kind of big macro democratic problem, which is redistricting. Right? If you can elect some democratic governors, maybe flip some state houses in 2018, you the Democratic Party will put itself in in. Pl- position to have more control over drawing congressional lines in 2021. So I think those are all things to keep an eye on. You know, and and I think what has been exposed uh, in the wake of the election is just how deep some of the cleavages are in the the Democratic Party, you know, between, um, you know, the some progressive uh, voters, um, you know, some progressives who didn't even turn out to vote, um, you know, the more centrist, some who were big fans of Hillary Clinton, you know, these were all uh, differences that we were aware of, but then had had been papered over uh, in in the general election in a way that Republican divisions actually weren't papered over. Uh, but, But now that the election's over, you know, I think you see a lot of Democrats um, up and down the ticket at sort of all levels of government grappling with, with you know, what, what this new coalition may look like that they can build. Um, and so, you know, I think you're going to be seeing these discussions play out. You know, certainly, um, as Scott noted, um, at all the different uh, levels of, of government as, as people think about who should be running. But then, you know, also certainly among donors um, and all kinds of uh, conversations happening in, in Washington among party leaders and former party leaders as they even debate, you know, what the party should look like. Yeah, I'm really curious to see who the the party settles on as the new DNC chair because it's emerged already as sort of a proxy fight between Bernie Sanders forces and Clinton slash establishment forces. And uh, you, you see a real debate. I mean, I think the, the, the backdrop for the DNC chair fight is a question about where do we try to compete? Do we try to compete in 50 states? What is the future of the Obama coalition? How viable is it? How transferable is it? I mean, that's a question that I think the party has to confront. Is the Obama coalition transferable to another politician? Uh, and it's not quite uh, certain that it is yet. So uh, that'll be a good question to watch going forward. Here's the lightning round question, and I'm going to throw it to you, Katie, first. Here's a question we got from Joe. Do you think Bernie Sanders could have beaten Donald Trump? My lightning round answer is no. Uh, you know, I think that uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, as much as he energized, uh, you know, a slice of the Democratic base would have been um, so much of a polarizing pick that, um, you know, that, that actually would have further solidified Donald Trump's uh, hold on Republicans. Um, it would have brought maybe even more reluctant Republicans home to him. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's such an unknowable question, right? I think in general, I tend to assume that if if you couldn't win the primary, then then you wouldn't be able to win the general. Um, that just you know you, you need to pass one test in order to get to the other. 
Um, certainly Sanders, it does seem like Sanders did best during the primary in places where, where that, that really made Donald Trump's electoral map victory possible. And so I think, you know, in, the, in that sense, it would have made the, the matchup interesting. But I think it's, it's, it's hard to say. I don't know if he would have won or not. I think it's hard to just look at, at you know, his popularity, having, you know, never faced, you know, sustained Republican attacks and all that stuff and say, oh, of course he would have won. Um, but, uh, you know, I, it, 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 it seems more likely than not that, that he wouldn't have, you know, you guys are going to get torched on Twitter by the Bernie bros and, uh, other assorted trolls for, for knocking down Bernie's prospects. But I have to say, I, I think I do agree with you. Uh, it would have been very tough for Bernie Sanders. Although I think my answer is different now than it would have been six months ago. Six months ago, I would have said, no way, no chance. But when you look at the final results, when you look at the the real hunger for change uh, that was out there, uh, I begin to wonder maybe could Bernie Sanders have done it? Uh, but I think Scott's point is, is, is a very valid one, which is he didn't have the oppo research cop carpet bombing dropped on him. He, you know, he didn't have the sustained attack in the Republican side from Republicans or even from Hillary Clinton. I know he thinks he did, but that was nothing. They held back. And so it's really hard to know. But it's also important to note that for much of the campaign, the polls did show that when you did a head to head Bernie versus Donald Trump matchup, Bernie did win, but I guess we'll never know. Of course, know. the polls and also the polls showed, showed a head-to-head <laughs> Clinton-Trump matchup with Clinton winning. <laughs> That's and a really good point. My disclaimer on all of this is, you know, if this election taught me anything, it's that it is a really hard and dangerous to make predictions. So this was a, a forced lightning, light lightning round answer, but <laughs> not a prediction. So Katie, here are a couple questions uh, that I think you're really well suited to answer uh, from Sophia and Carla. And here's what Sophia wrote. I've been reading about the efforts in many places to limit voting by cutting down on polling stations, among other things. And then Carla writes about, uh, I'm wondering what the effect of election suppression efforts, such as limiting polling places uh, and voting machines in neighborhoods of color uh, had on the outcome of this election. So I, I know you, you wrote a lot about North Carolina, did a lot of reporting on this. What did you see along these lines? Sure. Well, of course, we are still uh, sifting through kind of the final numbers. But, you know, what I can tell you is if you take a look at uh, early vote results in, in, in North Carolina, there actually was quite a big drop off uh, in African-American communities uh, between those who participated in the early vote uh, in 2016, which is a practice that often uh, benefits Democrats and, and those who participated in 2012. And, you know, when I was talking with Democrats on the ground, they said that they uh, really felt the impact of some uh, efforts undertaken by, by the Republican state legislature that did limit, um, you know, the availability of, of early voting locations and, and, and times, um, you know, at, at least for a period uh, of time um, dur- during the election. So, you know, it's something Democrats are, are very upset about. Uh, they think that uh, absolutely played a role uh, in handing North Carolina to Donald Trump. Um, you know, Republicans push back on that. They, they say that there was plenty of time for, for everyone to vote. But, you know, it's certainly um, something that, that Democrats taking a look at the core constituencies that they needed to turn out. They feel that especially in states like North Carolina, of those constituencies were unfairly targeted and, um, you know, do you worry that, that that did play a bigger role than, than they were prepared for? So Clark had an interesting question. He writes, um, he was wondering what we thought about uh, Hillary Clinton's positive polls potentially having a negative effect on Clinton turnout and uh, was wondering if maybe the opposite effect was the reason why her numbers were up in Arizona and Texas. So uh, I guess his point is, did the polling breed complacency? And I would say, you know, that, you know, that's not really 
out of the question. I mean, if you saw poll after poll in a place like Pennsylvania and Michigan, Wisconsin, all of those states all showed the bulk of those polls showed that the race was locked up. I mean, I don't think it's out of the question to think that maybe that would have influenced some people. Would it have been enough to swing the election? I, I don't know, but I think it's certainly a, a plausible explanation. Do you have any thoughts on whether you think that might have had an effect in some of these states? Well, certainly both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump had historically high unfavorable ratings. Um, and, you know, in the case of the left, um, you know, there were a lot of people who did not like Hillary Clinton. They, they certainly didn't like Donald Trump more. But, but um, you know, I, I think that you know, looking at some of these states where, where things were close, you know, there, there may well have been that dynamic where people would have said, well, you know, I, I don't really like either of them, but there's no way Donald Trump's going to be president. So, you know, I don't really have to, uh, you know, pull the lever for, for her either because, you know, I, I don't like her much, uh, but even though they, they might have actually preferred her uh, over Donald Trump. So so it's uh, certainly possible that some complacency may have shifted the margins a little bit, at least least in, in some places where states are close. So Katie, here's a question for you. This one is from Courtney. She writes, my question is, as a Democrat who is bitterly disappointed by the events of this week, are there some Republicans I can slash should support who are known to work across the aisle and who could help steer Trump away from his crazier ideas? I am alarmed that some of the far right Republicans essentially have free reign to push through whatever they want. So I'd love to know if there are some reasonable Republicans I can support. John McCain comes to mind, but I am really at a loss. Well, thanks for that question, Courtney. I would say you are not alone. Um, there are Democrats and also a lot of Republicans um, who are wondering the same thing, who, who uh, maybe were not big fans of Trump, uh, either in the primary or even in the general election, um, and, and are wondering sort of who may be willing to serve as a check on him, potentially, uh, even from his own party. So, you know, John McCain is someone who has already uh, drawn some contrast with him, uh, even since the election on Russia. Um, I would say McCain's close ally, Lindsey Graham, is is someone who is uh, renowned for uh, kind of his straight talk. Um, and he, he's made very clear uh, what sort of where he's been willing to disagree with Trump. He, he said that he wants to give him a chance, but but at the same time has uh, some very clear policy priorities. He's also someone um, who, like McCain, has a long record of working with Democrats on issues like immigration, for example. Um, so, you know, he's certainly someone to watch. Um, you look at senators like Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski. Um, you, th those tend to be uh, more centrist Republicans uh, and, uh, you know, have... Some of them have expressed their, their own concerns about Trump. Uh, Rob Portman, who, who uh, won re-election handily in Ohio, did that in part because, uh, you know, he did reach out to Democrats. And, and, and in fact, he uh, enjoyed some support from, from folks who might have otherwise uh, voted for, for Democrats um, and uh, maybe even voted for Hillary Clinton. So, you know, certainly um, the, there is uh, a sizable group, especially in the Senate, of, of folks who, who come from perhaps a more uh, pragmatic centrist background and, and I think are, are willing to potentially stand as a check on Trump, depending on the issue. Now, Charlie, I have a lightning round question for you. Some Democrats are very dismayed by the results of this election, and they are wondering whether it's possible that, that Donald Trump may get impeached. Some of them, I think, would hope to see that. Is that realistic? Did I sign off on this change in format? <laughs> um, no, I think it's a good question. I know we got uh, a couple of questions along those lines. Uh, I think it's I, I thought a lot about uh, the impeachment scenario before the election because I was because you heard uh, a lot of talk out of uh, the Republican Congress about possible impeachment scenarios for Hillary. Uh, and in, I had to assume that if the Democrats were going to win one of the chambers, you would hear the talk about Donald Trump being impeached. Uh, right now, I tend to think 
Uh, I, I tend to think it won't happen largely because of the unified uh, control of government right now. You've got a Republican House, Republican Senate, and uh, as long as Donald Trump uh, minds his P's and Q's and doesn't somehow set off some kind of constitutional crisis, seems like uh, he's probably in a better situation than he would have been otherwise. So Katie, here's a question from Katie. And she writes, come January 2017, do you think Republicans in Congress and the White House will spin this election as a mandate for full-scale change or will show some restraint considering the narrow margins? If they go all in, how big of a risk is that actually? Well, thanks, Katie. Great question. Uh, you know, I think that we are already seeing Republicans uh, having some disagreements about this. You know, Mitch McConnell has suggested that the the party, of course, uh, Senate Majority Leader has suggested that the, the party uh, should not go too far in, in sort of overstepping, uh, you know, should, shouldn't interpret too strongly that they have uh, a mandate, um, you know, because uh, there's elections every two years. And if you go too far uh, the other direction, um, you know, uh, often voters will, will you know, turn out and, and, you know, vote you out of your, your majorities. Um, then again, Paul Ryan, uh, Speaker of the House, has come out and said, you know, we need to go big, we need to go bold. Of course, they've won up and down the ticket. And so certainly there's a lot of Republicans feeling uh, pretty enthused about where they stand right now. But certainly there is very much a real risk of overplaying your hand. I mean, uh, the, you know, this election was, especially in a number of states, very close. You know, Hillary Clinton looks ahead in the popular vote. Um, and, and so certainly uh, Republicans, while they, they control Congress and the White House right now, if they go too far, um, you know, in, in the other direction, um, then you may see some very motivated folks turning out uh, in the 2018 midterms. What I'm going to say is, it's going to sound so cynical and, and, and stop me if, if it's too cynical, but I kind of feel like the discussion about a mandate is almost anachronistic these days. I mean, we really used to have real discussions about, does this president have a mandate or not? And then, you know, maybe sometime around 2000, maybe with the, the George W. Bush election or, or even after that, I think both parties immediately claimed the mandate no matter what. And it's always in Washington pedal to the metal partisanship and you will claim anything as a mandate and you will always bow to the dictates of your party base. And if the party base wants it, it's going to happen. And it really doesn't matter what the size of your victory was one way or another. I think that's right. So that's it for us this week. Hopefully uh, we answered a lot of your questions. I know we uh, weren't able to get to all of them and we're sorry about that, but you know, we have uh, some time constraints we're working under before we go. What do you think Kristen's doing right now in Las Vegas? Do you think she's sitting there at a, you know, a nickel slot wearing a Siegfried and Roy t-shirt, just pumping the nickels into the slots? Or do you think she's at a crab stable screaming her head off? What do you think she's up to right now? You know, maybe scoping out the Trump hotel, you know, the ties to, to the new president elect. You can't escape, but <laughs> I hope she's somewhere warm and, 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 and not looking at her phone would, would be my hope for, for her and everyone else who gets to be on vacation right now. Right. For her sanity purposes. Okay. Well, thanks, Katie. Uh, loved having you here. Thanks so much, Charlie. And thanks to Scott Bland for his usual brilliance. And thank you, listeners. Thanks so much for a great election season. We will hear from you next week again. Uh, and thanks.